This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And today, I'm here with my dear friend and colleague, Jeff Klein. Jeff, how are you today? I'm doing great, Ann. Very good, Jeff. Well, we have a wonderful guest today. And uh, this guest, in fact, I know is right up your alley because he'd like to dismantle bureaucracies. <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> I know you have. <laughs> I know you have. Uh, and the title of his book, Jeff, is A Portmanteau. A Portmanteau. And I'm just wondering if you know anything about portmanteaus. I, I, uh, <laughs> I'm just glad to be here with you, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> that you know something about portmanteaus. <laughs> yeah, well, I do know a little bit about portmanteaus. Port, a portmanteau is, I guess the first definition is it's a suitcase. And it's a suitcase that opens up exactly in half with each side of equal dimensions. So just a suitcase that opens up and you close in the middle. But it also is an expression for two words that are shoved together to make a new word. And when you think about it, they're all around us. They're all around us, like email is a portmanteau, electronic mail, email. Mm -hmm. Or how about labradoodle, doodle, a labrador, <laughs> a labrador. <laughs> whatever, whatever that animal is. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, the name of the book is Humanocracy. <laughs> nope. No, no, hold on. Humanocracy. Humanocracy, that's it. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to invite our guest, Gary Hamill, right to the show right away. Gary, welcome. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Gary, um, I'm just going to say a little bit about you, and then we're going to dive into your book. Uh, Gary, you've worked with leading companies around the globe. You're a sought-after speaker and academic. You've been with the London Business School for more than 30 years, uh, running something called the Management Lab. But now I understand, am I right, that you're located at Stanford? Well, I live in Silicon Valley, uh, near Stanford, but not at Stanford. Not at Stanford. Okay, very good. And you've written 17 articles for the Harvard Business Review, and your newest book is, in fact, published by the Harvard Business Review. I'm going to start with an opening question and then hand the baton to Jeff to make sure he gets a word in edgewise. I always like to look at um, dedications. So I'm going to actually start with your dedication. And you've dedicated the book to... Kelly Duhamel. Duhamel. Can you say a little bit about Kelly? Yeah, uh, Kelly uh, was, a, was a dear friend of mine, uh, an amazing uh, individual who I got to know, who, who, who very sadly uh, died as part of uh, the opioid crisis in this country. And uh, I got to support her and be with her and help her through much of that. And I learned a lot through that process of how vulnerable we are all as human beings and uh, how much we need 
those around us who buoy us up and, and help us uh, try to move through life. So uh, that was just a recognition of a very deep uh, friendship. Oh, really lovely. And then the content of your book, you start with a question of why poke the bureaucratic beehive. So would you say a little bit about that? Why, why take a stab at bureaucracies? Well, you know, most of us work inside of organizations that all fit the, the same template. Power trickles down, big leaders appoint little leaders, uh, direction and strategy gets set at the top. Uh, we have powerful staff groups who set all these rules and then demand compliance. We get slotted into narrow roles. We report to managers and we all compete for the scarce resource called promotion. And that, that thing has worked pretty well for about the last 150 years. It's, you know, helped us do all kinds of complicated things from running the back office of a bank to building automobiles to building, uh, you know, microchips at, at five nanometers. It's extraordinary that is what it's allowed us to do. But we're now, I think, at a point where it's becoming a handicap. You know, we now need organizations that are not only kind of efficient, but we need organizations that are daring and resilient and, and creative. And most of our organizations struggle to be those things. And it turns out, when you look at kind of what I might call the core incompetencies of, of organizations, these disabilities, you track them down, mainly these disabilities are the product of organizations that don't let human beings do their best work. Because as, as individuals, we are daring, we are resilient, we are creative, we can't help but be, but so often our organizations aren't. And in that observation, you know, comes, 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 you know, a potential solution. So how do we build organizations that are capable, as capable as we are? And what that really means is, is dismantling bureaucracy, which was, after all, an invention that was designed to turn all of us into semi-programmable robots. And in many senses, it succeeded, but it succeeded at quite a price. You know, when, when you look at the data, here's, here's what we know. We know that only one in five employees at work believes their ideas really matter that only one in eight or one in nine believes that they can influence decisions that are important to their work, uh, that, that less than one in 10 are free to experiment and try new things. And maybe the most damning statistic of all, Anna, Jeff, is that uh, the, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, as they look at jobs across the economy, estimate that 70% that of jobs require little or no originality. And, and obviously that doesn't say anything about the people in those jobs, but it says everything about how we've built those jobs. So, you know, if we want organizations that can change as fast as the world around it, that are alive with the spirit of entrepreneurship, uh, that are ready to take on the, the enormous challenges we face as a species, we have to find a way of building organizations that inspire people to be all they can be at work rather than merely kind of factors of production. Oh, Gary, I know you're speaking Jeff's language, so I'm going to bring him right into the conversation. All right. Thanks, Ann. And Gary, great to have you on the show. We really appreciate you being here. Um, so I, I guess as I was looking at the book, um, I, I will admit I, I was hoping I had found a kindred spirit. And maybe one of the ways to, to investigate that, did, did you have some really um, traumatic bureaucratic experiences? <laughs> part of what fueled you in writing the, show, in writing the book here? <laughs> I, I would say, uh, Jeff, only vicariously. Um, okay. now I'll, I'll give you two that kind of bookend my career. Uh, luckily, I've been an academic most of my life, although, as, as, as uh, Anne said, I've worked inside innumerable large companies. But, but you know, I, I went to academics because it seemed like the closest thing to anarchy where you could still get a paycheck. And, you know, and, and you really only reported the dean when you felt like it, as long as your students are happy and your 
colleagues were happy, like life was good. But 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 I had a very early experience uh, when I was at the University of Michigan, which is where I did my PhD in in, in the late 1970s. You, you, you might remember, you might not be old enough to remember, but that was really the first time uh, U.S. industry started to get pummeled by, by global co competition. And I grew up in Michigan, and I watched as uh, GM and, and Ford and Chrysler pretty much went to the wall as, as Toyota, Honda, these new companies came, much better quality, a much more engaged uh, workforce. And, and I watched how, how long it took for, for, for U.S. car executives to understand what had happened. And I could see the cost of their indecision, the arrogance, the inertia, uh, the, 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 the bureaucratic privilege they were defending. And you could see that in people who lost their jobs and communities that were hollowed out. And I understood that, you know, what, what we do as leaders has immense human consequences. And if you get it wrong, many, many, many people, people suffer. And so that, for me, at that stage in my career, that moved the study of management organization from this kind of intellectual pursuit into something that was very real and, 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 then, and then very personal. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, many decades later with my, my, my wife, um, just to give an example of bureaucratic inanity, she's, she's a physician, uh, OBGYN, uh, works, working in a large hospital group. And uh, a little while ago, they discovered they had an extra unused printer sitting around in their office. They figured they could, they could use another one, uh, a group of about 12 physicians. And so they called corporate IT. They said, can you come over and like, hook up this new printer and get it onto the network? And the IT guy said, well, you know, you're only allowed one printer for every eight physicians. So, no, we can't do that. You have to go to the printer committee. And this is a literal thing in this hospital, a printer committee, and get the site off on. I got like... Okay, that's not quite as bad as like destroying most of the U.S. car industry, but it's just as stupid and uh, and just as frustrating in that moment for that person. So that was really kind of the genesis of saying, okay, guys, we 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 got to do better. And what was very interesting, Jeff, I'll just finish the story. Quite a few years after that first experience, I want to say now the late 1990s or something, I ended up sitting with the senior leadership of a Ford. And this lovely uh, townhouse in the middle of London having an extravagant uh, dinner one night. And um, uh, I, I don't think there are many extravagant dinners going on in the U.S. car industry anymore, but at that time. Uh, and over dinner, I asked this question. Or, or sorry, somebody said, we've just completed our 20th annual benchmarking survey of Toyota. And I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and I said, so like, what did you guys learn in year 20 that you didn't learn in 19, 18, 17 16, right? Like, what's taking you so long? And um, I don't always get invited back, as you might tell. But anyway, I just let that 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 question hang there, like 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 the cigar smoke. And uh, finally, their their treasurer answered the question. Very smart uh, answer. He said, "Gary, the first five years we went to Japan, we 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 looked at what they were doing. Uh, uh, we we sent over our young people. We asked them to benchmark, and they'd come back and they tell us how good they were, and we didn't believe them." There's no way you can make a car with that few defects or that few labor hours impossible. He said, the next five years, as, you know, the evidence mounted. So at some point he said, okay, they're pretty good. He said, the next five years, we told ourselves it was because they were Japanese. And like they had some strange cultural traits. They believed in Nemawashi and Wa or whatever that was. And, but we said like, well, we'll never do it because we're not Japanese. You can't do this with our obstreperous workers in Michigan or Ohio or, 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 or you know, and so on. He said, but of course, then they came and they built plants. 
in the U.S., they got the same results here. They got there. So that went out the window. Except for the next five years, we said it was process and it was technology and it was just-in-time systems. And so we, we benchmarked, we studied, we brought all that back. We never got the same results. They find, he ended by saying, only the last five years have we admitted to ourselves that they started with a fundamentally different point of view about the capability of people at work. And so they were investing in people on the front lines, teaching about statistical process control and Pareto analysis and, and giving them the right to stop, you know, billion dollar production lines if they saw a problem. And, and I think, Jeff, that, that just goes to the heart of the problem. You know, the, the hardest thing for us to challenge are our own deeply embedded beliefs, and even more so when they're tied up with our power and our authority. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it took literally a generation for, for that to really sink in. Oh, boy. Jeff, I'm going to jump in just for a second and say this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall. I am here with Jeff Klein, and together we are interviewing Gary Hamill, author of Humanocracy. <laughs> How's that? How'd I do? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Creating organizations as amazing as the people inside them. Jeff, did you have a follow-up? <laughs> well, I, I do, because I, I think I want to ground us all um, in, in uh, where the revolution is focused here. So, Gary, um, how, would you, how do you know if you're stuck in a bureaucracy? What is the bureaucracy? You know, first, you'll, th th there'll be a lot of telltale language. In a bureaucracy, you'll, help your, 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 you'll hear, hear people talk about uh, human resources, right? That's that's like the first giveaway, because kind of the core way we think in a bureaucracy is the organization, the institution hires people to make products and services and, and profits, but in that rendering, the human being is an instrument, right? They're just something you use to do something else, and probably we we we'd recognize that in our personal lives, if we're in relationships where other people turn treat us like like instruments. It was like, no, Jeff's job is to take out the trash, keep gas in the car, and pick up the kids after school. Like, if that's all Jeff is good for in a relationship, like, you're going to feel like an instrument, right? That, it's probably not your best. And obviously, that's well, not. He may not even be good at those things, Gary. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, um, you know, uh, you may have other strengths, of which we don't know. But, but, but that's, so that's the, the telltale. You know, in, in what I would describe as a humanocracy, we flip that around. And we recognize that, that human beings are human beings. They have agency. They join institutions to have an impact in the world and to earn a living. And it's, it's the institution that's the instrument, not the human being. You know, that, that, may, that may sound very abstract yet, but one of the organizations I profile in, in the book, I've worked with them a long time, Hire in Japan, the largest appliance maker in the world. The first time I met their CEO, Zhang Rumin, and they own GE appliances in, in North America. So, so he was sitting in my office and he'd come because I'd written another book, and, and about how do we reinvent management. He said, Gary, I want to go try this. Has anybody done it? I said, not really. But here's what he said. He said, um, we want to make every employee their own CEO because we believe that human beings are an end and not a means. Now, that's, that's the first time I'd heard a CEO quote Immanuel Kant, right? Great philosopher, <laughs> categorical imperative. But, you know, it's a darn good place to start if you want to build organizations that are fully capable. Because unless, unless you have that orientation. So that's, that's the first way I would I know I'm a bureaucracy. The second way I would know is, is that uh, are, are, are there more than, than a couple of management layers? So if I'm in an organization that has four or five or six or eight, the average company more than 5,000 people has eight management. That's like a shirt. 
side that, right, we do not trust people on the front lines. We've not equipped them to, to, to be independent. We've not equipped them to think like innovators. And so, perforce, we need all these layers of, of bureaucracy, all these layers of management. That would kind of be my one, one of my second tells. I think, I think a ter- third tell would be, do I feel that people around me are mostly competing for the scarce resource of promotion? Are they competing to climb that pyramid or are they competing to add value? So is it kind of zero sum who gets ahead or is it positive sum? Like we're all working to increase value. Some of us are gonna make a bigger contribution than others. So that would be another tell. Uh, related to that, I would also probably ask, does compensation correlate mostly with rank or mostly with contribution? If it correlates like 0.9 with where you sit, for sure, that's a bureaucracy. So, I mean, the fact of the matter is, I, I, would, I would say that probably 98% of, of organizations of any size today are still built on, on that bureaucratic mold. And, and, and you know, here's, here's one, one quick thought. Like, bureaucracy is just a technology, right? It's a technology of like, how do we bring people together to do collectively what we can't do alone? So very simple. Having said that, like all technologies, it's the product of its time. And if you go back to the mid 19th century, when this thing gets invented, you know, some mashup of command and control systems and industrial engineering, you go back to the 19th century, what do you find? The average employee was illiterate. And so you needed like managers to tell you what to do. Uh, Information was very expensive to move. And the, the easiest way of doing that is have 10 people report to their boss. The boss consolidates their inputs, reports up again, and so on up the chain of command. And in that environment, literally only the people at the top had the whole picture. Um, you know, it was it was also a, a, an environment in which administrative skills were rare. You know, Wharton itself, right? Wharton's the first business school, if I'm right, correct? You first are right, yes. <laughs> like, amazing. So what Wharton could see, and the, and the founders of Wharton could see is, as we started to bring lots of people to work, we needed a new class of employee who could wrangle all of those individuals. And, and we needed something called a manager. Well, you know, in the late 19th, early 20th century, a manager was kind of as esoteric a thing as being a data scientist or a geneticist today. It was like unique. They didn't exist. We had to train them and, and business schools came to do that. Today, administrative competence is a commodity. Like, like no company wins because you have slightly better managers than the next guy. You win because you have new products and you're closer to customers and so on. And so, so that was the world in, in the 19th century. Illiterate employees, information hard to move, administrative capability, you know, very much a, a competitive advantage. Today, I would argue none of those things are true, and yet we're still stuck, you know, kind of with that legacy. And, and, you know, and when we think about it for a moment, we know it's kind of crazy, you know, that the fact that, that the average person in, in an organization, they, they cannot requisition a $300 office chair without somebody's permission, you know, they can buy houses and buy cars, and it worked like you got to get a sign off. If we thought about that for a nanosecond, we'd, 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 we'd know it was crazy. And so we can talk a little bit about why this has been so hard to defeat. But I think if you were, let me say this, if you work inside of it, you know it because work sucks. Uh, that would be your first sign. And, uh, you know, when, when you look at the data, Gallup, what does Gallup tell us? They tell us that globally only 15% of employees are engaged in their work. Like, like that means the other 85% are showing up, but only physically, right? right? They're not there with their initiative, their passion, their, their courage. They're just, they're just like there. And, you know, if, if we were in any other field, here we are talking about business. If we were physicians and, and somebody said to us, well, of the 100 patients you saw last week, um, you know, only 15% of them got better. Like, that's not a good outcome, right? So, yeah. If you work in a bureaucracy, you know it. All right. Well, 
a quick follow-up and then I'll uh, let me give it back to Ann here. Um, though, Gary, even before I ask you this question, um, I do have to admit that that we had a little bit of controversy at Wharton and Penn about, you know, during this work from home period, who was entitled to actually go get their office chair and bring it to their home. So it's not even the requisitioning of the chair. It's yeah. a transport <laughs> issue here. So, yeah. so I, I think I'm recognizing that there's bureaucracy all around us. Now, you, you said this earlier, but I, I want to make sure we, we um, put a fine point on it. Um, bureaucracy, it sounds like then, is not just, um, it's not just a structure for the large organization that we see it in organizations of, of all kind. Uh, how much do you think bureaucracy affects smaller organizations? Hmm. You know, uh, so I live in, in Silicon Valley, and if the sun was up here, which it isn't yet, <laughs> I, I could look out and see, uh, see Netflix and Apple and all so on and so on. Uh, but, but living here now for a long time, I see all of these young companies that are flat, uh, open, you know, bold, uh, and so on. And yet, as they grow, they lose that. And you don't have to get very big. I would say that typically, by the time you get to 100 employees, um, often, like, you've reached, unless, unless you're very intentional about not falling into that old model, you, you, you will reach a tipping point. Uh, and often what happens, you know, we all see it, is as, as a young company grows, they start to hire experienced people. Right, who come in and they bring their they bring their big company thinking, and they say, you know, you need all these systems and processes and layers to keep things from spinning out of control. And you know, I, I think it's important to say one thing, you know, and I, I guess I intimated this earlier. Bureaucracy has 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 brought a lot of advantages, um, and 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 basically, it 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 it's the technology of control. It makes sure that like we're doing the right thing at the right moment. And, and by golly, we need control. I mentioned, you know, microprocessors, the, 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 the new Apple iPhone 12 that got introduced, what, yesterday, this week? Uh, that, that, that is built on, on five nanometer uh, uh, chip. You know, the core processor, anything, like five nanometers. That's, like, that's the distance your fingernails will grow in the next five seconds. <laughs> like, how much control do I need over how many variables to do that, right? Like, control is a good thing. Like, I'm not for anarchy. Um, and, yet, and yet, I think the question that, that we're trying to ask is, okay, can you get the kind of control and consistency and coordination that you need to, to scale up any business, any organization, but do it without getting, you know, the, 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 the apathy, the conservatism, the timidity, the politicking that so often comes with, with a large bureaucracy. So, so how, how do we buy the benefits of bureaucracy duty-free uh, is, is really the question that we tackle in the book. Hmm. Gary, you pack a wallop here, and so far in our conversation, we've really talked primarily about some of your, you know, your opening chapters, particularly on building people and not products. That's really been the heart of our conversation. Uh, what I'd love to do is hear more about your second chapter on everyone's an entrepreneur. Could you speak to that? Yeah, a couple of quick thoughts there, Anne. I mean, first... We know that 70% of young people across the United States would like to start their own business or, or work in a small business. Uh, you know, unfortunately, many may not get that chance, probably won't get that chance. But part of my argument in the book is like, we can turn every organization in, into kind of a, a, a confederation of, of, of owners, of entrepreneurs. Um, and um, 
let, let, let me give you an example. I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier in our interview, hire this large Chinese company, uh, you know, historically fairly bureaucratic. What they did was, uh, and I'll give you an American example as well. They divided a, a 4,000, sorry, a, a, a 50,000 person organization into China into 4,000 microenterprises. So everybody is now working in a small business of, of a 15 or 20 uh, individuals because you can't feel like it's your business if there's 150 or 200 or 1,000 people in your unit. It has to be small. It has to be compact. They gave each of these units three freedoms, the freedom to set their own strategy, the freedom to kind of uh, define their own organization roles and so on, and finally the freedom to distribute their own rewards. So you have the freedom that a typical entrepreneur uh, would have. Uh, number three, they give them a substantial upside. If, if you hit certain ambitious targets, you can multiply your base pay several times uh, over. You can also invest in your microenterprise. You can put in some of your own money and, again, get a dividend uh, if you hit certain targets. So it's, it's kind of like strange, and I've known this company for some time, you know, uh, an enormously large company uh, in, in, in China, and yet it probably has more capitalists per capita than any company I've seen around the world. Or, or I look at a company like Nucor here in the United States, the most consistently profitable steel maker in the world, uh, an amazing organization uh, of about 20,000 employees, about $21 billion in revenue. They run this, this big organization with, with, with a third the number of managers per capita of a typical company that size. They have only 100 people in their head office. Uh, I was talking to one of their, their senior leaders and 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 uh, I said, so how many people? In fact, the 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 the, the CEO. I said, how many people work for you? He said, Gary, what a silly question. Nobody works for me. I work for them. And so, what what makes this organization unique? But but not 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 unique across the whole world, but still rare, way too rare, uh, is every single employee in that organization, what we would call blue collar employees, feels like an owner. They're, they're all compensated based largely on whether they continue to grow the business, grow a capital efficiency, grow the top line. Uh, uh, if, if they hit certain targets, there's a bonus in, in next week's uh, paycheck. Uh, these, these blue collar employees run thousands of experiments a year. They are free to make big investments, multi-thousands of dollars in new equipment and so on. Uh, if, 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 and they, they operate with 75 uh, uh, plants across the country. Uh, each is its own division, a standalone business uh, with almost no corporate allocations at the center. There's no HR department, no, no IT department, no engineering, no R&D. In fact, I, again, I was asking their, their recently retired CEO, I said, you guys are the most innovative in the world and yet you have no R&D department. He says, no, no, we have 20,000 people in our R&D department. And so, so you, you look at this organization where they've turned on the entrepreneurial energies of every single employee. You know, if, if you, you, at, 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 at Newcore, you see blue collar employees, production line employees out visiting customers, right? What new kind of steel can we make for you? And, and um, you know, and, and, and the thought behind that model, which has been there now for several, several decades, several generations at, at Nucor, it started with a guy named Ken Iverson, who's a very pioneering CEO there. And, and his core observation was that we have created in most of our organizations the caste system. We've created this like distinction between the thinkers and the doers, executives and workers, the clever and the compliant. And as a result of that, we're just, we don't get the best out of people. And they've turned that thing upside down. So, you know, the, the, the recipe here is not so complicated. The recipe is divide, divide big units into small units, give people autonomy, give them a real financial upside, uh, uh, invest in giving them the business skills they need to think like business people, get out of the way. And it turns out 
that when, when you do that, you do not need many managers. You know, Hire, when Hire made this jump, they got rid of uh, 12,000 middle managers and they are never coming back. Now, most of those people weren't fired. They went to work in these new little micro enterprises and they're having a much better time there than they were when they were like being micromanagers and surrogate parents, right, to, to, to ordinary employees. But, but and by the way, it's, it's really interesting questions for a business school. Right? Yes. What, what happens? What, 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 what do business schools train people to do when you have an organization like Hire that has only one or two layers? And, right. and nobody's, nobody's like looking for the bigger job, the bigger role, the bigger position. Everybody is working to create more value. So I think there are alternatives, and maybe I, I, would, I would finish with this. As you guys know, right now, we're having a very interesting debate, at least like a certain debate, around the world on capitalism. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the data, it's, it's, it's very worrying. Um, 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 Edelman, I believe it was, ran a big global survey, uh, more than 20 countries, and, and, and 50, 56% of respondents said capitalism is now doing more harm than good. You go, holy cow, how do we get there? This thing that's lifted a billion or more people out of poverty, how in the world did this happen? Uh, and, and of course, when you dig deeper, what, what, what people are saying is the rewards of capitalism have not been very equally distributed. Right. In recent years, the CEO class, the investor class, they've been done pretty well. Ordinary investors, not so much. And so you see the, 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 the victims, if you like, maybe a strong word, but those who fall and pray to deindustrialization across the American heartland. And, uh, you know, a lot of them voted for, for, for Donald Trump in the last election, maybe again. You see all these young people, many of them college educated, many of them marooned in gig economy jobs who, who are all in for Bernie or who are saying, let's mm -hmm. give socialism another chance. And, and I, have, I have enormous heart for, for both of these. I mean, the, 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 the fact is that, that so many human beings are locked into jobs that don't give them the chance to develop their capabilities. And, and, and we, 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 I think we commit an egregious error, economists, policymakers, CEOs, when we think about some jobs as low-skilled. Right. I think that's BS. I don't think there's any such thing as a low-skilled job. I think that's kind of a, a credentialism. Well, if you didn't go to the school I went to, if you don't have the degree I have, like it's a low-skilled job. And, and then, we, then we compound that by assuming that those, quotes low-skilled jobs are filled with low-capability people. Right. But, but if you don't train them how to think like business people, you don't give them the real financial upside, you don't give them the chance to grow their skills, guess what? They can't add much value, and then that simply reinforces your starting prejudice, right? They, they can't do much. And so I think that the, the, the biggest thing we can do to, to, to restore, restore capitalism is to, is to start to build companies where every single employee has, has the ability to be a capitalist. <laughs> I have that upside where I can grow my contribution, where I feel like I own something and, and, it's, and it feels like mine. Oh, Gary. All right. One follow up and then I'll, I'll get Jeff right in here. Gary, you probably know this. Um, uh, I think of it as a bit of a classic text by Gareth Morgan called Images of Organizations, where he looks at organizations through various lenses and metaphors and talks about the upside and the downside of that particular lens. And so he would be right with you on the downside of the bureaucracy, which is the organization as a machine. So uh, we've talked a bit about the upside of, you know, <laughs> of the organization that you're envisioning. What are the potential downsides? <laughs> Can you think of any? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like, what's the downside of exercise? Well, you know, maybe you blow out your knees if you like, run on a hard surface. I don't know. 
I mean, what, what I can tell you is the organizations we profile in the book, Svenska Handelsmarken, the most consistently profitable bank in, 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 in Europe. Uh, we've talked about Hire. We've talked about Nucor. Birdsorg, uh, uh, the leading home provider, uh, provider of home health care in, in the Netherlands that runs a 16,000-person organization with two managers. If you look at these and the other organizations we profile, their engagement scores are off the chart. Um, their productivity is at least twice on average, or capital productivity is twice uh, their rivals. Uh, so, you know, it's a little hard to think for me to see the downsides here. What, what I would say is it puts a lot of pressure on individuals, a lot of positive pressure. There's no place for mediocrity to hide. Uh, you know, you, you are... You know, you, you don't negotiate your targets with your boss and say, well, I just like have to meet that. You are, you are competing with everyone else. In many of these organizations, it is your peers who val evaluate your performance, not your boss. You wake up every day thinking about what can I do to add more value? You know, I'm, I'm competing against everyone in this organization to stand out, to, 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 to make. So, so they are, they are, I would say, high pressure work environments, but mm -hmm. they're also, you know, high autonomy. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so, you know, maybe some people don't thrive in that, although it's very interesting. Uh, and when I, when I was talking to the folks at Newcorp, and, and they're, they're based mostly in small rural areas across the country, I thought, you know, maybe you guys are so good because you just hire the best of the best, right? These are, these are, these are college educated people mostly, but you screen them and you just get like the ambitious and the, and, and he said, Gary, you're wrong. He said, I think we could do what we do with 99% of the people in any of the communities we're in. Hmm. He said, everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to do better. They may have been beaten down. They may have not had that, that chance in their life. You know, they may have grown up in very difficult circumstances, but he said, we, we give them the chance to do that and most will rise to the challenge. So that may be, I would say probably a uh, uh, kind of one potential downside. Mm -hmm. But I, but I don't think there are many because when you build an organization that is fit for human beings, mm -hmm. well, that's probably a good thing to do. And uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see a lot of downsides. What, one of the hardest things about making the, the transition, though, uh, is that, you know, if if you've spent your career playing that old bureaucratic game, right? If you've learned how to negotiate targets, manage up you know, kiss the bosses, whatever, and, 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 and hoard, you know, and, and fend off rivals and, and deflect blame and whatever. And then somebody comes along and says, okay, guess what? Now we're going to build an organization where we have almost no layers at all. Where we're none, you know, that's not the way you win anymore. You know, that's, that's like going to LeBron James and saying, we know you've been really good at basketball, but like, let's try this volleyball thing. And you know, he'd pick you up and throw you like three tiers up into the stands or something. So, you know, I think yeah. for people who have a lot invested in the old model, it's quite disconcerting. But, but here's what we found. Here's what we found. Um, most managers really don't get off on micromanaging others. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Gallup data is interesting. Managers are leave it even less engaged than their employees because they get it from both sides. And, and you think about, you know, those of us who've been parents, you know, one of the happiest things when you're a parent is as your kids grow up and, and they start to make their own choices. And you relax, you know, you, you move those boundaries back a little bit. You're like, wow. And they get on with their lives. And yes, they still make some silly choices as we all do. But I think what we found in organizations that kind of moved to this model is 
everybody's job gets better. It's a difficult for a while, but most managers, they like, gee, you know, I get to, if, if I'm not micromanaging, I can work on more interesting problems. I can develop other people. I don't, I'm not, I'm not answering stupid questions. I'm not trying to keep them within the rails. So I think there, there is that kind of uncanny valley that you have to go through. And a lot of people have to rethink their roles and yeah, that that's hard, but, but our evidence says everybody's job gets better. Very good. I'm going to toss to Jeff, but before I do, just let me say this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall here with Jeff Klein, and today we're speaking with Gary Hamill, author of a brand new book, Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside Them. Jeff, I know you have a follow-up. Of course. Yeah, I have many (laughs) follow-ups. You, know, you, you describe creating human-centric organizations in the book, right? And, and you have some core tenets around that. And I, I'd love to dig into some of them. But before we even do, I, I think the question that has um, been kind of top of mind for me, for our listeners and for people running, you know, small organizations up to large organizations, um, if this, this notion of humanocracy has uh, appeal and connection for them, is this an incremental change process or is it mm. a radical change process for an organization? Can, can, you, can you take baby steps towards it or do you really need to um, commit to the model? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, next question. <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic question, Jeff. It's a perfect question. So let, let me start by the radical side of it. You know, I, I believe that we're at a point in, in, in business history, management history, you know, our organizations are confronting unprecedented challenges. You know, the, the pace that they need to change. You have, you have customers with extraordinary power today who kind of can vote you out of business fairly quickly. So, so, so yeah, we need organizations that are radically different from, from the ones that we have. Um, let, let me give an analogy. Most of us uh, today are familiar with kind of radical innovation in business models, if you like. And I wrote a book about this years ago called Leading the Revolution. So take, take an example. If you think about the difference between Netflix or YouTube and terrestrial television of 20 years ago, right? That's like a 10 out of 10 radical change. 31 million channels on YouTube, right? Uh, so we're used to that. Uh, or, or we see the way we send money around today with Venmo or PayPal or Apple Pay or Alipay. We go like, wow, okay, that's not a checkbook. So I think we, we have to be... We have to be able to imagine similarly radical changes in how we lead and how we manage and how we motivate in our organizations. Because you know, our research, I won't go deep here, but I will tell you our research looking at industrial history over 100 years uh, and, and much longer than that says that, that really what drives success in the long run is not your strategy, not your technology, not your products. It's your management model. It's whether you've figured out how to really get the very best out of people. So you have to, you have to be able to think radically about that. But as you're suggesting, Jeff, you have to get, you know, from here to there, right? And 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 the old model works, right? After fashion, it may not be perfect, but it works. And so we spent a lot of time talking in the book about how do you make this this migration from you know the old model to the new model. And and I'll, I'll just say this by way of quite a bit of summary. You know, it's it's going to happen through just a lot of experimentation. We got to hack the old model. Which doesn't mean some big top-down change program and let's try to engineer it in advance and roll it out. What it does mean is encouraging, training, helping everybody in, in every part of the organization say, listen, 
if we really want to build an organization around a new set of principles, if we want to build one that's, that's open, that's meritocratic, that celebrates ownership, that feels like a community, uh, that's good at managing paradox, uh, then some things have to change. So what do I change where I am? How do I start to hack something that's within my control? Don't, don't, don't go up. Don't ask permission. What do I do now? I'll, I'll give you just one example of, because let, let me back up for a second. I think, you know, when you work on these large organizations, or even not so large, anywhere, even as I said, 100 people, you know, and you have HR policies, and you have an IT function, you have the finance people, it's very easy to believe that I really can change nothing about how my organization works. I can do my little job, and I'm just stuck. Whatever those other policies are, I'm stuck. And so you have a lot of learned hopelessness. But you can start to hack. So I'll give you a quick, quick, quick little example. This, this was in a, in, a, in a European pharmaceutical company. A few managers were sitting around complaining about the company's travel policies. And uh, when we could travel, God willing, again one day, right? And they're saying, our company, first, I got to get permission to take a business trip. Really? Like, and, and then they tell me which airline to fly in. Then they tell me which hotels to stay in and how much I can spend per day. And I got to think, do I get reimbursed for this $3 cup of coffee? And it's like, it's, 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 they treat us like children. So here was the experiment. Here was a little hack that came out of that. They said, let's take 30 people in a big company, 30 people, and uh, sorry, 50 people, and they did this in two, two control groups. So I think overall they had 100 people they did this with. So take 50, uh, 50 people, two, con uh, uh, two treatment groups, and two treatment groups, so a total of 200. Pardon me for confusing math. So two treatment groups of 50 people, two control groups, 50 people, 200. So here was the experiment. They said for the next 30 days in these treatment groups, uh, you guys can travel anytime you want. If you want to fly Emirates first class, have a good time right? Stay wherever you like. But when you come back, we're not going to audit anything. We don't care where, what you spend, but we are going to take all, all your all your seats and we're going to put them up all online. So everybody sees how much you spend. So as you might expect, uh, travel costs went down, not up. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that single change made a noticeable difference in engagement scores. So you run that for 30 days. What, what, what if it goes wrong? It may cost you a little bit, but like it's not going to blow anything up, and so we and and so in the book we go through to some pains to actually talk like how would you build your hack? How do you get a few people around you? How do you decide what to experiment on? How do you get? How do you put up a few hypotheses? How do you collect the data? How do you see if it works? You know, one of the things today that you guys would know well is you know we are more and more teaching employees around the world how to do rapid prototyping, how to run a sprint, right? How to how to how to run experiments. We just need to do the same thing in management we're doing with our websites, with our products, with our services. And so I think to your, to your question, Jeff, I think that's the way it's going to change. It's not like one like big Armageddon-like battle, but it's when people like say, no, no, I'm going to start to take accountability here. I'm going to uh, try to, 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 to hack the existing systems of the model. I'm not going to blow up what's there. I'm only going to use volunteers. Uh, I'll do it within my, my budget. And I can give you a, a, many more examples like that. But I think the starting point is wherever you sit in an organization, think of yourself as an activist. Because I, I will tell you, if you know, if we wait for the bureaucrats to uninstall bureaucracy, that could be a long way. Gary, I have to tell you, that, you an activist. <laughs> the, the headache you're creating for Ham. Exactly. This conversation. Right. Um, but but I, I do want to make a point. I, we, we can be an activist in the micro, right? But I should still. I should still keep working on my giant flaming sword for the revolution in case that one battle comes, right? I mean, I, 
Well, there's, you know, here's, here's the, here's the amazingly exciting thing today, which like just didn't even exist 10 years ago. Now we have social technology. Our organizations are becoming more and more horizontal and less vertical, right? We're all connected together. And you can use that to kind of start a, a positive bottom-up movement, a revolution. You know, one, one of the stories I, I tell in the book, and, and I tell you, this is one, of, one for me amazing story. My, my first job was in healthcare, and I know how complex and big and, and bureaucratic hospitals are. So here's a woman, Helen Bevan, sitting in the middle of Britain's National Health Service, 1.7 million people. She's having a meeting with some young trainee doctors. They're all like super frustrated how much paperwork, how many mandates, how much time they spend feeding the bureaucratic machine. And, and they're saying, gee, like, like, really, I signed up for the next like 30 years of my career and this kind of a thing. So they, she had a very simple idea with this, with this young group who came together, some, 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 some co-conspirators. They put up a little simple platform. This was, this was 2013, which was the 65th anniversary of, of, of Britain's NHS. So she put up just this like simple little platform, didn't ask anybody's permission. She said, here's a place you could pledge on how you are going to improve patient uh, outcomes uh, within your within your job, within your scope of permissions. And, and her goal was, how do we re-energize people around patient care and, you know, kind of demote bureaucracy a bit? So they went out through all the usual channels. They were on Twitter and so on and, 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 and trying to get people to come and make their pledges. And uh, they ran this for, for three months. At the end of three months, they had 187,000 pledges. They called it change day. Uh, the next year they ran it, they had 800,000 pledges. Uh, they then got some of her the, the people together and built the online school for healthcare radicals. So this this was somebody who never asked permission, who never went up. They just said, "Let's call it Change Day." Like, let's put a big title on this thing. But it was completely grassroots. And I think you know that's the power of this t- of of what we can do today, right? You do not need to wait anymore. You know, I, I so often when I'm working in organizations, often young people come up to me. They say, "Gary, you know our executives. Like, here's a great idea." Would you give us like a little plug? And I usually say no. And I say, you know, the fact is most ideas are stupid, right? There's a reason that executives reflexively say no, because, you know, most of them aren't very smart. So I said, before going and doing that, see if you can get like five or 10 colleagues to show up on a Saturday and help you flesh this thing out, help build a prototype, do a little experiment. Because certainly what I've learned is that while it's easy for leaders to say no to one person, like who just has an idea, when you have a dozen person who've done something and have data, and then when you start to share that, mm. so, you know, when we do this work now kind of at scale, because I think you can do it at scale, Jeff, it doesn't have to be all bottom up. You know, we're, we're now, we, we, we built our own kind of platform for this. And so now we can, we can go into a, a very big tech company we're working with right now where we have 70,000 people on the same platform kind of doing the hacking together. So, uh, but, but, but I will tell you what, what, what is impossible to do, and that is to make this change top down. No leader, however progressive they are, no leader has enough hours in the day to go one by one to the VPs or the SVPs or the, and say, like, guys, we need to change this. We need to. And, and, and that, you know, that approach will stall out every time. So, you know, that's for me, that's the most exciting part of this is seeing ordinary people starting to take responsibility for building the sort of organizations they want to work in and not, not waiting for somebody else to say, like, this is OK. And, and once that gets started, it's, I think it's quite unstoppable. Our experience would say it's unstoppable. But that, you know, that, that's my dream is that you know, one day when we talk about change, no one is ever going to use the word, the word cascade, right? That somehow this comes down. <laughs>
<laughs> just slightly academic. I, I would say, you know, my, my hope is that in the future, and I believe that in the future, all of the most effective change programs will be socially constructed. They'll roll oh. up, not out. Oh, gorgeous. Gary, believe it or not, we have just two minutes left, and it's usually customary for Mike, Jeff, and I, Mike Yusim, when he's here to, to join us, to do uh, what we call an AAR after action review. And I would like to just have you say really briefly, if there's one main point you would like our listeners to take from our conversation today, what would it be? It's gotta be brief. All of us have a choice. If you work in an organization that you don't think gets gets the best out of people, you can bitch about it or you can change it, but that is your choice. (laughs) Very good. All right, Jeff Klein. Uh, What Gary said, I'm with him. Oh, come on, Jeff. <laughs> oh, <my goodness. laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's all about the people, Ann. It's all about the people. It is all about the people. And Gary, just a yes or no. Do you think the COVID-19 has increased the speed of change or slowed it down? Yes or no? <laughs> yes. All right. I agree. I think it is. I don't think we're going back. I think we're only going forward. Well, Gary, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show. It was really a pleasure having you. Where can listeners find out about your book? Well, if you want to know about what we're doing, it's humanocracy.com. And by the way, if you get the book, there's an amazing uh, free uh, e-course that will help you build your first hack and nothing to buy. And you'll see video, you'll meet all these companies that we talked about. So yeah, help yourself and, and go make something happen. Fabulous. All right. Well, thank you, Gary. And a thank you to Jeff and a thank you to our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Ann Greenhall. I've been here with Jeff Klein. And together we've been hosting Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Come back next week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 